0: would like to invite everyone to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Our journey uh, through Hebrews in Hebrews brings us to chapter 8 verses 1 to 13 this morning. I came across an article some time ago that was about a trend, uh, our changing trend for how we name boys so not too long ago. Uh, boy names would be typical boy names. Andrew, George, Peter, Michael, Chris. But now parents are changing the trend, at least in America. Instead of naming a boys with a classic name, parents are deciding to go with more action-oriented names. These names include, and I just apologize in advance if you are in the crosshair of these. <laughs> these names include... Angler, camper, tracker, trapper, catcher, driver, fielder, racer, sailor, striker, wheeler, breaker, roper, trotter, wrangler, lancer, shooter, slayer, soldier, tracer, trooper, blazer, brewer, charger, dodger, laker, pacer, packer, raider, ranger, stealer, (laughs) warrior, dreamer, Jester and Rocker, you'll notice that Preacher did not make this list. (laughs) The author went on to write, in light of this trend, that when parents choose names that reflect this action, they're saying something about who they hope their children become. Many parents name their children with a subconscious hope that they live up to their name. There's a a peculiar temptation as a parent, it's usually subconscious, sometimes more overt, but for parents to put their hopes and dreams on their children and that would cause them to give them certain names that they might live up to this name, uh, they they come to expect certain tangible outcomes from their children. And it's, it's usually a lot more than their children can bear or should bear. So like parents who kind of want to put an expectation on their children for something tangible to come out from their life, the temptation of the Jews to whom Hebrews was written was to put their hope in something tangible, right? something seen. So much of what we as Christians are called to believe and cling to is unseen very very little of the christian life might actually be called tangible proportionally speaking it's it's primarily spiritual and you know it's hard to cling to something to put all your hope in something that you can't see or feel or touch especially if you're being persecuted for it we want something tangible some observable measurable thing Something earthly. But this is a a misplaced hope. It's a a misguided hope to want to do this. The the tangible, the the earthly, could never fully sustain human hope. And and, and when the author of Hebrews is arguing this way, he's saying, seen and felt priests. right? A a seen and a felt tabernacle. A tangible law on on tablets of stone were not enough. The earthly could never achieve what humans desperately need. Full and final redemption. It's it's more than the earthly could bear. It's more than the earthly should have borne. It is far and away better, more excellent, that our hope is spiritual. Heavenly. Heavenly. Because only the heavenly can accomplish and offer true and full redemption. It's better, in other words, that our hope is unseen. It's better that you can't see it. As we read and and walk through our passage today, I I want to point out two reasons that the author gives for why our redemption is is better. Particularly why the unseen is better than the seen. Why what you can't feel is better than the felt. Why, why, in other words, the spiritual, why what is spiritual, what is heavenly, is a more excellent redemption. So let's read Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. First, a more excellent redemption needs a heavenly priest. And in verse 1, the author brings his argument up to now to a climax. And don't you love it when people say, the point is we're saying is this, and this is what he does. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. Everything he said in chapter 7 about this, this new Melchizedekian priesthood. If you need to catch up on that, I invite you to listen to the sermon from last week. Just wait till this one's over. But he's, he's saying Melchizedekian priesthood and how Jesus is this new Melchizedek. And the point is this we have this priest. That's great. Of course, the question is, right? We have this new priest, this new Melchizedekian priest. Where is he? Why isn't he at the Jerusalem temple? Why are the priests there still offering sacrifices? Why hasn't he gone, so to speak, to to stop them? He answers, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This this echoes what he already wrote back in chapter 1, verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You want to know where this priest is? He's ruling the universe right now. That's where he is. He's not on some earthly throne. He's on the heavenly throne. He's not ruling just this slip of land, Israel. He's ruling the world. And he's not just on a heavenly throne, but in a heavenly temple. Verse 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Even when, you know, in in Israel, in the history of Israel and the law, even when the, the high priest enters, he goes into the Holy of Holies one time a year, he never enters heaven he could never even enter God's presence on earth but one time a year. And, and even in the Old Testament, God's presence is, it has to be mediated. right? God's presence is mediated through angels. So he's not even really fully in God's presence. This high priest is in the heavenly presence of God where God's glory and presence is fully realized, ministering ceaselessly in his presence. The point is... You, this is as enveloped as you can get in God's presence, and Jesus is there. He's in the, the true tent, the true tabernacle, the true temple. It's the heavenly versus the earthly. I don't know how many of you kept up with the Titan submarine that went to go try to you know see the Titanic. All right, we didn't know what happened, but... But even if they were alive, it was a hopeless rescue mission from the start. Even even if the passengers had survived, right? Even if they're sitting in their submarine at the bottom of the ocean, there was no possible way to rescue them. The the deepest underwater rescue to date was at 1,500 feet, 1,500 feet. The Titan got lost at 30,000 feet. Humans, just like the earthly priests, had reached as far as they could go, and it wasn't far enough. Jesus has marched into the heart of where humans cannot go and performs his perfect rescuing priesthood without ceasing. He doesn't grow tired of it. He doesn't have to sit down. He's not frustrated in his work. There's no disappointment in the people he ministers for. So he's in he's at, on the heavenly throne, ministering in the, the heavenly tabernacle. But a priest has to, to do something, right? A, a priest has, has a task to accomplish, to perform. And particularly the... the author focuses here on the task of offering and making sacrifices. This is why the author goes on to talk about gifts and sacrifices. Verse 3, for every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. He's saying, yeah, this high priest, he's on, in the heavenly throne or on the heavenly throne in the heavenly tabernacle and he also must make an offering and you know it, here the author doesn't specify what that offering is he just says he this this it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer i mean he has mentioned in, in chapter 7 verse 27 he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this when he offered up himself. So he, what the author's doing is he's, he's shifting his focus, right? Chapter 8 is kind of a hinge chapter and he's shifting his focus because gifts and offering and sacrifice is going to become the next major focus in Hebrews. But, but, but the question remains, right? He's, he's got to make offers. He's in this heavenly temple. Why haven't the Levitical priests stopped? Right? Does what they do still have any value? I'm glad you asked. Verse 4. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. In other words reason he's not at the Jerusalem temple and he's not coming to those priests is because he can't be an earthly priest because the whole point is that there's a new priesthood in place of the earthly. He's not, in other words, he's not a priest according to the law so why would he perform his priesthood according to the law? So this is why he continues, right? They serve Right now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you made everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So do they still have value? No, they do not. Because their earthly ministry is only a copy and shadow of the substance. And now the substance is here. That's this, like, okay, right here, verse verse 5, right? See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. You know what's behind that word pattern? The word type. Uh Uh-oh, you guys remember that last week? Type, typology. What was shown to Moses could only be a type or a figure of the reality. It's like God showed Moses the Notre Dame and Moses had to build it with Legos. We don't need the model now. We have the real thing. We don't need a copy. We don't need a shadow. It would be easy as a persecuted Jewish Christian, right even as just a persecuted Christian, to want something real and tangible to hold on to. It's, listen, as a Jew, this is what they had known their whole life. Their whole life, they're instructed to go to the temple and have these priests perform these duties on their behalf. Would it be so bad to go to these guys again? Maybe I could still, like, maybe remain a Christian and go to these priests too, so that I'm not excluded from my friends and my family in in Jewish worship. The author's answer is an emphatic no. If you go to the familiar, to the seen, to the tangible, to the earthly, you are going to but a shadow. They had their place. The shadow meant that something was coming, right? If if you look down a hallway and you see a shadow, you know that the shadow isn't the main thing. You know someone's coming down the hallway. And that someone has arrived whose ministry is unseen because it is better. Verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. See, in in these verses, how he brackets this off with that word minister, right? And he he writes of Jesus in verse 2, Jesus is a minister in the holy places. And here in verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. Matthew Imadi, a, a theologian and pastor, he wrote this, Christ has had to ascend to heaven to mediate salvific blessings to the nations because only a priest in the true tabernacle could accomplish effective and eternal forgiveness. It's much more excellent because it is heavenly. the author mentions covenant right here. He's saying the ministry he's obtained... Is better because the covenant on which it's premised is better. He talks about this in, in verses 7 to 13, this covenant. But he, he ties Jesus' heavenly ministry to the covenant in which he ministers, and he says, He says, because it is enacted on better promises. So so Jesus is this priest not trying to settle a dispute between two parties. It's not as if God and man are in, in, in Jesus' ministry deadlocked. The fact that he is priest of a new covenant means that this dispute is settled, right? He stands as a priest as a guarantee that it works, that there is no enmity. It's just as we read in chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And it's precisely because he's a heavenly priest, an unseen priest, a spiritual priest that makes that possible. Second, a more excellent redemption needs a heavenly covenant. A heavenly priest and then a heavenly covenant. Back when Willa was a toddler, she spoke to everyone in her language and she expected everyone to understand her. Now, I, I never knew parent, you know, l- toddler language because, you know, if you're, before you're a parent, the toddler will say something and you're like, I have no idea what they say. And the parent's like, oh, they, she just wants milk or whatever. And you're like, I don't know how, how you got that. Well, Willow was that way. We had a plumber over to our house. She uh, confidently comes up to him and says, hey, man, my bathtub's chewy. Please fix it. That's not as difficult to understand, but still, right? Using her own language. Uh, here, here's probably one that, that she was uh, really difficult to understand. One time, my in my laws, grandparents were watching her, and I what do you want to eat? She said, I want beans, bats. You can take your guess. We do not feed our daughter bats. Of course, by bats, she means ground beef. Um, I don't know where this came, came from, but her language, right, is, was non transferable, so to speak. Right, It only works in in one setting, one situation. Trying to speak the language of the old covenant with a new kind of priest just doesn't make sense. It's non-transferable. You can't put a new priest into an old covenant. A new kind of priest demands a new kind of covenant. And that's his point in these verses. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. This is, look, he's just moving right along. This is back in chapter 7, right? He said this about the priesthood. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? Right? In that chapter, he compares the oath to Abraham to the oath to Melchizedek. Here, he's connecting the promise of a new priesthood to the promise of a new covenant. And, And he goes on to quote Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 Verse 31 to 34. And this is the single longest quotation of the Old Testament any, found anywhere in the New Testament. Right here. This is pretty significant. And if in the last chapter he's doing an exposition of Psalm 110. In this chapter he's doing an exposition of chapter or Jeremiah 31. Let's, let's read. So, for he finds fault with him, verse 8, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Remember, he's writing this letter to Jews who aren't just tempted to give up On this Jesus thing, this Christian thing, they're tempted to go back to where they were. And it's almost as if they're asking, look, this is good, but didn't we have a lot of this stuff in the Old Testament already? Right in the Old Covenant, didn't we have a lot of this in place? The primary thing that the author wants his audience to see is just how utterly superior this new is over the old. That it's just ridiculous to try to compare the two. And, and he does that here in a negative way. He, like, it's so superior because the old is just inadequate. You, and you had two sides of the coin. First of all, the old covenant couldn't produce anything. And then on the other side, the people couldn't keep it. So the whole thing was defunct. It's as if the author's saying, if you go back to it, you're going back to something that's never been proven to work. In fact, it failed spectacularly. And The author does something interesting here, right, before we we move on. He does something interesting here. He quotes Jeremiah 31, and and so verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish, he says, I will establish a new covenant. And and that word is there, it's in the the Old Testament, but our author chooses to substitute that word. So... Instead of establish or make, the author chooses this word that means complete. I will complete a covenant. His point in that in changing that wording is to say that this covenant will not be like the old because we're not going to be waiting around for the terms to be fulfilled. It will be complete as soon as it's made. The new covenant will be new in every sense of the word. One commentator said, this word recalls the theme of Christ's perfection. God is not going to simply make a covenant with his people, but to complete or consummate one with them. Therefore, everything about this covenant in every respect is better the terms will be completed never to fail because of the promises that it includes and i'm going to run through these run through these fairly quickly first promise verse 10 for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel and after those days declares the lord i will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people. The law will not be an external thing, but an internal change. This is the first promise. The second promise, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Each person in this covenant will have ready and intimate knowledge of the Lord, regardless of office or station. Automatically. Automatically the second promise. And the third promise, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Paul Williamson, another theologian, wrote, Sin cannot imperil the divine human relationship guaranteed by this new covenant, for sin will not be brought into account. This covenant will be new in every conceivable possible way it's not a reformulation of the old not a reconfiguration not a a tweaking if we just tweak it here and there it's a new and qualitative superiority and all of this is accomplished because god has supplied our heavenly priest a heavenly priest accomplishes seals ratifies and completes a heavenly heavenly covenant and the terms of this covenant like our priest are unseen right we can't see the law because it's written in our hearts we can't see our god yet we know him intimately We can't see Jesus as offering for our sins, but our sins are forgiven. It's unseen. It's spiritual. It's heavenly. Perhaps we can see now how the author is building up to chapter 11 and the need to live by faith. Yet I think this shows us one reason we like to gravitate toward legalism. Legalism is nice and tidy. It gives us clean, demonstrable rules to live by. We can see the results. Modesty is not a posture of the heart, but a length of the dress, two inches below the knee. Purity is not a love for holiness, but but seeing how far you can go without actually sinning. Righteousness isn't a, a declaration, but being right politically or culturally. Checking off boxes is easier because it's measurable. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, Paul wrote in Colossians. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. These have an in, indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above heavenly where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, people of God in the new covenant are no longer distinctive based on what they wear. Based on what they celebrate, based on what they eat or what they drink or where they're located. The people of God in the new covenant are distinctive because of holiness. And that holiness just so happens to radiate outward into everything that we do. So, yeah, it matters how we eat and how we drink and what we wear, but none of those things have an effect on holiness. Holiness has an effect on them. This is something the old could never have accomplished. And so he concludes in verse 13. He says, In speaking of a new covenant, covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away it's another interesting thing that the author does here he says this this old covenant is becoming obsolete and growing old and ready to vanish this word doesn't mean to just kinda dissipate or or disappear in fact behind this word there's this meaning of a deliberate destruction Luke Johnson not our own but a, a theologian he wrote this, the, the first covenant is not only old and weak, it is destined for imminent destruction. And, and, and what more evidence do you need with the literal, physical destruction of Jerusalem and the physical dismantling of the priesthood in 70 AD? Our redemption is better because we have a heavenly covenant and it cannot be destroyed it cannot be threatened and it cannot be undone it's heavenly it's protected it's completed it's sealed it's ratified untouchable so we must set our eyes on what we cannot see because what is unseen is more valuable It's more effective and more excellent than what is seen. You cannot see your heavenly priest, but he is standing in heaven as your perfect representative. You cannot see your heavenly covenant, but God has completed it for you and has written it on your heart. You cannot see your suffering and dying Savior, but through faith in him, All that he accomplished becomes yours, and all your sins and failings became his. And there is no way for your sin to cancel the equation. Nothing can threaten these terms. You cannot threaten them. God has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Marvelous. Let us praise his name forever. This is our God. This is our priest. This this is our covenant. And it is heavenly, it is wonderful, it is excellent. It is everything you need. Let's pray. Father God, You have accomplished all of this on our behalf, despite us, so that that our sins and our failings, even our obedience, doesn't factor into the equation of all of this. You have set your divine love on us, your people. You have given us a high priest to complete this in a a heavenly covenant that cannot be changed or undone. We stand freed. We stand forgiven. We stand fully righteous in these terms. Your law written on our hearts. A knowledge, an intimate knowledge of you. Full, free, and final forgiveness of sins. And there is nothing we can do to change it. It is accessible to us, offered to us through faith in the unseen one, through faith in the only one who is real, through faith in the substance, through faith in Jesus Christ, unseen but more alive than anything in this world. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.